Welcome to the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. I'm the founder of the MarTech Alliance and also your host, Carlos Doughty. In today's episode, I'm joined by Scott Galloway. I'm going to be chatting about his fantastic book, The Algebra of Happiness. He's back with us for the second time, having joined last year when we chatted about the fall. Scott is a professor, author and entrepreneur from his books to his Pivot podcast to Winners and Losers videos. He produces some fantastic work, which is super fun. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. It's great to be here with you again. I've got, I've got to ask first and foremost, when you were chatting with your publisher and you said, do you know what? The Four was obviously an epic win, bestseller, um, what's next? And you went, not a tech follow-on, let's do a book about happiness. <laughs> what played out there? Yeah, the immediate response, true story was, no, 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 no. <laughs> there was, it was write the five, write the six, talk about how much you hate Mark Zuckerberg. You know, the pump is prime. There's, the four was my first book, so I, I didn't know that much about publishing. But one of the dirty secrets of publishing is that if a first-time author has a successful book, you can pretty much bank that the second isn't going to be very good because the agent will or the publisher will go to the author and go, just get anything out because the, the distribution channel is primed and wants to put your new book on the shelves. So I didn't have a vision for another tech book. I was kind of exhausted from the first. Uh, writing a book for, about tech for me was, I don't want to say it was difficult because I enjoy writing and I think I have some domain expertise there, but it takes a lot of research and a lot of kind of you know, behind the scenes sort of academic peer level. It's just a ton of work. I have 20 or 30 pages of notes in the four. And I told him I'd written a bunch of stuff on happiness and relationships. Uh, and that was, I don't want to say it was easy for me, but it was much easier. And they, they discouraged me. They said, no, write another book on tech. This is a hard left. You have no credibility here. It's a crowded space. And I said, well, I'm doing this. And they kind of came around and actually been very generous with me. And it's, um, you know, it's done well. And I think it's done better than they probably anticipated. So, you know, blessed, blessed and lucky again. You talk quite a lot about being lucky, actually. But surely, surely there's more than luck. You know, I mean, you make your own luck. Um, that might be a terrible Titanic quote or something. But yeah. I've heard you quite say quite a few times that you get lucky, but there's, there's clearly a hell of a lot more that goes on. I mean, you talk, for example, around in your book, around in your 20s to 30s, that the balance is a myth about putting that shift in. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to be clear. I'm not a humble person and it's not a humble brag. I think, and this is going to sound, I think I'm talented. I think I'm maybe even the top 1% in terms of work and natural gifts and the training I got in college. But being in the top 1% globally puts you in a room with the population of Germany. That means you're in the top 75 million. And I, when I look at my blessings and my opportunities and the life I lead, I'm well above in the, the top 75 million. So the question is why? Why are you below where you kind of should be based on your talent and your grit and why are you above? And the reason why I'm above where I think I rightfully deserve to be relative to the rest of the world is because I was born into a society in California in the 60s and 70s that I would say I kind of love the unremarkables. I was an unremarkable kid. I didn't get good grades. I didn't test well either. And state-sponsored education kind of lifted me up by the scruff of my neck and flung me forward. And then I came at professional age in the 90s in San Francisco, where within a seven-mile radius of SFO International Airport, there was more wealth created from 92 to 99 than had been created in all of Europe since World War II. So it was, it was just kind of money and opportunity being thrown around everywhere. And you combine that with a great education from Berkeley and from UCLA that cost me nothing. And what you have is someone who was raised by a single mother who lived and died a secretary, got the opportunities to have 
uh, an incredible lifestyle uh, that weren't, you know, that most people don't get. So yeah, I'm, I'm good, maybe even great, but I'm also just ridiculously fucking lucky. And it's easy, <laughs> to, credit, it's easy to credit your character and your grit with your success and blame the market for your failures. I have no such delusions. The reason I'm uh, here talking to you right now is because of the generosity and vision of California taxpayers, because that uh, America, at least in the 70s and 80s, kind of, I would say, loved the unremarkables. And I, I, I speak, think of myself as being part of that cohort. But yeah, I'm exceptionally, except, you know, am I super talented or am I super fucking lucky? The answer is yes. Both. <laughs> and you, so you talk about, um, obviously in your book, you give some fantastic advice. Um, to young people in terms of how they can really accelerate their career. And one of the bits you do touch on quite a lot is to be in that top percentile, that you need to go above and beyond, that it does mean putting crazy work ethic in. Um, obviously that's, that's gotta be with success at the end, but your definition of success is achieving and being in that 1%, um, whether it's financially or from a career perspective. And obviously you've been through that journey. Obviously that can be really challenging and tough, what did you do that kind of kept you G'd up? What is it when you're, when you're putting that type of work, those hours in, that hard grind that you do that, that keeps you on point? Well, everyone has different kind of embers that drive them. But, and I want to be clear. I, I don't, this is written through the lens of the, my cohort is I'm speaking mostly to my kids. When I say my kids, I mean the 4,500 students I've had in my class at NYU. And almost all of them, when I query them, where do they expect to be economically at the age of 30, 40, and 50? They not only expect to be in the top decile in the top 10%, they expect to be in the top 1%. And my observation around people who've achieved that, that sort of professional economic success is that they had very little balance in their lives in their 20s and 30s. And I decided early on, and people don't like to have an open, honest conversation about um, money, but I decided very early on that economics were really important to me. I grew up with very little money. My household wasn't poor, but we were you know, money was an issue. It was a, it was a point of strain. It was me and my mom, you know, our, I think her, our household income peaked at $40,000 and it was a lot less than that for most of my childhood. And I decided very early on when I saw my mom get sick and how difficult for uh, was for us. And, and the fact that our options were more limited because quite frankly, we just didn't have any money and we didn't have any contacts. I decided I, I was going to, uh, the money was very important to me. And I didn't know how to do it any other way than kind of working all the time. And my observation is that uh, the majority of people I know, almost all of them, unless they're smart enough to inherit money, if you really want to get to that point of success at an early age, balance is a bit of a myth. I'm not saying you can't invest in relationships. I'm not saying you can have a good time. But most of my 20s and 30s were largely about work and not much else. And it comes at a cost. It cost me my first marriage. It cost me my hair. I missed out on a lot, uh, but I have a lot of balance now. And so it came at a huge cost and was it worth it? Yeah, it was worth it because now I have incredible balance and opportunities and a certain level of economic security that I've always wanted. Uh, but you have to have an open and honest conversation with yourself that, okay, distinct of what the Hallmark Channel and your professors and your parents and self-help gurus preach to you about balance and following your passion, if you want to kill it economically and professionally, there's just no getting around it. You got to work like a maniac for a while, maybe even like 10 to 20 years. And there are some people who are so talented, the money just kind of falls into their lap and they can donate time at a homeless shelter and have a food blog and work out all the time. 
assume you are not that person. Assume that like most of us, if you want to kill it professionally and economically, you're going to have to work. Now, I'm not saying that's the only route to happiness. Some people decide that they're going to, they refuse to howl in the money storm and they're going to move to uh, create an environment where they have a lower burn and they're going to focus on doing something that they really enjoy and having a lot of balance in their life and they're going to be less kind of materially or economically focused and more power to them. The majority of the people I know and I'm around want to be economically and professionally very successful and relevant. And I just don't see any other way than working your ass off. And, and on that, how hard you work, one of the other things you, you touched on um, was around the ratio of sweating to watching others sweat. Yeah, I do think you have to make time just for your own. Uh, so uh, I have a series of equations in the book uh, around kind of best and worst practices for happiness and success and health. And one of those ratios is the percentage of time or the ratio of time you spend sweating to watching other people sweat is a forward-looking indicator of your success. So show me someone who watches ESPN or Premier League football two, three hours a night and then spends all Sunday on the couch watching sports. I'm going to show you a future of anger and failed relationships. Show me someone who is on the field sweating, playing, playing football or soccer in a club league, uh, does soul cycle, CrossFit, works out three or four times a week, and then uses spectator sports as a means of strengthening relationships with friends or family. And I'll show you someone who's good at life. I think spectator sports are sort of the new cancer. If you're watching a lot of spectator sports, it means your life sucks, in my view. Uh, there is a direct correlation, I think, between the amount of advertising you ingest and your success, and they're inversely correlated. Advertising has become a tax that the technologically illiterate and poor uh, have to pay. So look, get off the couch. And if you want to be less depressed, you want a greater selection set of mates, you want to feel good. I think in any room you walk into, you should have the confidence to be able to look around and say, I can either kill or outrun everyone in this room. And I think that's important instinctually. I think it's important for confidence. I think the release of uh, norepinephrine that you get working out is, is the most effective antidepressant you can have that's not pharmaceutical. Uh, so I think being strong is in, intensely important to success. And when I say strong, I don't necessarily mean ripped. I don't necessarily mean super skinny. I mean, being a stronger version of you. And I think if you look instinctively, we're happiest when we're in motion and surrounded by others. So playing sports with friends, working out in a, a kind of a community environment, whether it's SoulCycle or CrossFit, it's instinctively just very rewarding. And it sends a signal to the brain that you're hunting prey and building housing, and the brain releases or secretes a hormone that clears out the bad cholesterol, and you get to live a bit, little bit longer. So I think a key, key component of happiness and success is, in fact, uh, exercise. And the one thing that Fortune 500 CEOs have in common or most in common, other than they're usually white males, is not that they went to an Ivy League school, it's not that they were born into money, it's that they exercise almost every day. Yeah, I loved your, your quote around that. I can't, remember, I can't recite it exactly, but around the, a CEO basically being in a room ready to kick off if needed. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, like I said, and in my case, as I get older, it's, I try to, it's, I'm falling into the camp of, I, could, I think I could under, outrun everybody. I could just get out of the room and run. But you got, you got to feel like you're in decent shape. It just gives you a certain level of confidence across a bunch of dimensions. And just the, the chemical reaction when you're working out is just super healthy for you. When I don't work out, you know, part of this is a personal exploration for me. I struggle or with what I call mild depression and anger. 
and I really feel it come on when for whatever reason I haven't been able to sweat. Sweating is, sweating is just, uh, I think, a key component to happiness and success. I, I can't, I personally can't start my day about the gym. I have to. Nice. And um, um, you, you also, there were moments where obviously were incredibly deep um, and felt really quite sad and sort of really emotional at times. Um, where, where, do, where do you kind of sit now? Like how, how happy do you feel you are? Do you feel like you've achieved the things you wanted to? Like, and, and how does that feel from day to day? So uh, what I say is I hate my life less and less every day. And that is uh, the, the um, motivation for this book was my sister kind of summarized it. I speak to my sister every Sunday night. And about three years ago, she said to me, I was complaining about something. And she said, she said, Scott, why are you so pissed off all the time? She said, you have less justification for being angry than anybody I know. And when I did any sort of analysis on my life, and I think this is true of a lot of us, my blessings uh, do not foot to my mood. And that is I'm constantly pissed off. I'm constantly angry at other people, constantly disappointed in myself, uh, depressed, angry, upset. And I have an extraordinary life. And that's just no way to live. It's no way to live to have the blessings afforded most of us and not appreciate it and enjoy the ride. And so I set about this as kind of a personal journey and turned it into a class, which is now the, the last class of every, um, of every uh, the last session of every class. So where am I now? I think I'm much happier. I still don't think I'm as happy as I should be. But when I say happiness, happiness is a sensation. It's actually a misnomer on the book. You can get happiness or at least a short-term sensation from Chipotle, Netflix, or Cialis. I'm talking about making decisions and investments in relationships that create an arc of satisfaction such that as you get older and you get to my age, you feel like even if you were diagnosed with something terrible and didn't have that much longer on the earth, you could feel as if you dropped the mic that you had done, that your life had mattered, not only in terms of the rewards and satisfaction you'd afforded the people in your life, but also the experiences and emotions that, that you had felt. And you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of what it's all about. So I'm getting there, I'm not there, but part of, part of this has been a personal journey of trying to, again, get my mood to foot to my blessings. Because if, if, if I asked the majority of the people I know my age and said, all right, when you started out, what were your goals? They would say, I want to have uh, people in my life who love me and that I love. I want a series of interesting experiences. I want to be professionally relevant. I want to have some semblance of economic security. Most of the people we know have achieved most or all of those things, but they're still not happy or they still have periods where they're really disappointed in themselves. And there's an instinct, a competitiveness gene, which is really important because it makes the next generation smarter, faster, and stronger. But we anchor off the most successful person we know across every dimension and can't help but be disappointed that we don't have a fragrance named after us and we're not a member of parliament yet, even despite the fact we're probably doing pretty well. So I think a there's a lot of kind of best practices and behavioral modification you need to employ to, to kind of recognize um, how fortunate you are. And also I think it's key to professional success is that, you know, gratitude and being happy and optimistic are key components to success. But yeah, where am I? I'm, like I said, I'm less unhappy than I've ever been. And, and if you rewind slightly across your career so far, which is unbelievably um, impressive, um, What's, what points felt like the real tipping points for you? Where was it where you felt, not, I don't use the term you've arrived, but 
those moments where you could suddenly feel something had changed, that some of the work you've been putting in was suddenly coming back for you? So there's no one moment. What I, what I would argue is the moments that matter are your ability to get beamed in the face professionally. And your, the key moment is your decision to get up, dust off your pants, mourn for a little while, and then move on and step up to the plate and swing harder. Because it's so easy to get stuck. You know, you have a company that you work so hard at, had so much promise, and the company goes out of business. I've had that happen to me. And it's easy to kind of lose confidence. Um, people around you don't want to associate with you for a while. And it's easy to just kind of get stuck and really lower your expectations and kind of drift off into the distance. Someone you love uh, gets sick and die. Uh, I've had that happen to me. I lost my mom at an early age. And, you know, I talk a lot about my mom in the book. She's kind of the light of my life. It was me and her against the world. And it really kind of got me stuck for a couple of years. The key, the, the key moment, I think, in people's success is when they get up off the floor. Everybody knows failure. You will get fired. Everybody knows tragedy. Someone you love will get sick and die. But the key moments in success are your ability to mourn and then to move on and put yourself in a position such that when the moons line up and your hard work and you know, your blessings and a, and a certain amount of luck all line up and you finally hit it, um, that's, that, that was predetermined or that was set in motion. That success was set in motion by your ability to overcome adversity and hardship. So it wasn't, it wasn't, oh, I knew when the NASDAQ hit a certain level, I was going to kill it, or I made this genius decision around the company, we pivoted to this business model. You know, there's a lot of those stories. My limited success has been my ability to overcome failure and rejection. The reason I'm in a relationship with someone more impressive than me is I was willing to approach somebody uh, and start a conversation with them when it was really hard and embarrassing, especially without alcohol. My, my economic success is because despite the fact I've had more professional failure than professional success, I was always willing to try again until the moon's lined up and, uh, and I hit it. You know, the media and people I talk to, they know about my successes. It's my failures. You know, I've had a lot of them, a lot of professional failure. I'm also blessed that I live in America where people say, oh, America embraces failure. That's bullshit. We don't embrace failure, but we tolerate it as well or better than any other society. I think in some nations in Europe and in Asia, if I had failed with some of my businesses the way I failed, I'm not sure those economies would have given me other chances. So what? what's the turning point? The turning point is when you reach out to people for help, you don't lose your mojo, and after being beamed in the face, you get up again and set yourself up to be in the right place such that when the opportunity is there and the moons line up, you're ready to take advantage of it. Great advice. Um, can we jump into something a little bit different for a moment? Uh, you talk a lot around disruption of media companies, and obviously you've spent a lot of time at the New York Times as well. What do you see in the media landscape right now that's changing? What do you see that the opportunity is to survive now? And do you, who, if, if, if any publishing house, do you see that's really living it? It's a good question, Carlos, but unfortunately, it's not like a great, I'm not here with a message of hope. I think media has digressed to a few monopolies, mostly Facebook and Google, who are sucking the oxygen out of the air for anyone. Even in digital marketing, my kids, when I say my kids, my students come to me in office hours, and they want to talk about careers, and they say, well, I'm going into digital marketing. I mean, that's a great career as long as you work for Facebook or Google. 
because they own two thirds of all digital marketing, the fastest growing marketing medium in the world. And the, the other 33% is shrinking. So if you're in digital marketing and you don't work for Facebook or Google, you now join newspapers, uh, yellow pages, direct mail, and that you're in a business and structural decline. Now everyone was waiting for a third and there is a third. Unfortunately, the third is another monopoly and that's Amazon. Amazon Media Group is now the fastest growing media company over a billion dollars. It did 11 billion last year it's, and it's a juggernaut. But if you aren't at one of these three companies, we're all fighting over the crumbs. So unfortunately, you know, I think the future needs to involve antitrust. I think it needs to involve breaking up these guys. I think they're basically sucking the oxygen out of the room. I don't think they're evil, but uh, traditionally a natural part of the economic cycle is a firm because of luck, excellent execution, the macro environment, political influence becomes an invasive species and makes this jump to a point where they're almost impossible to compete with. It is very hard to compete with Google. Google can put any digital marketing company out of business. I think they could put Snap, Twitter, and Pinterest out of business tomorrow. They've decided not to such that they can claim they have competitors. I think with they said, I think if Google and or Facebook said, we're gonna put Pinterest out of business within six months, I think they could do it. And instead, I think they're so worried about regulation. It's a, these are nice, cute little companies that have two, 3% of the revenue of them. They're like, no, 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 let them survive. And we can point to them and pretend we have competition when we get hauled in front of the Senate or in front of the parliament. We used to be in what I would describe as the brand era. And that is thousands of agencies and little brands, all with shitty products, wrapping in brand codes, American youth, patriotism, masculinity, European elegance, sex appeal, hot youth. And then we wrap these brand codes around around these marginal shoe, sugary water, automobile, and then we'd pound away at these associations, reinforcing them with this incredibly cheap vehicle called broadcast media, stuff the channel with it, print money. That was the algorithm for shareholder um, uh, increases from 1945 to the introduction of Google. Now we're in what I would call a monopoly era. And that is a few companies that are exceptional, who soak up the best talent, have basically made the jump to light speed and are almost impossible, I would argue, impossible to compete with. So where do I see media going? The only company that I see right now in media that's really striking back, there'll be some niches. The media will go crazy over a Snap or a Refinery29. I think all these companies are, you know, they're good companies, but I don't think they're, you know, what I'd call relevant or by any stretch of the imagination. The company that is kind of striking back, I would argue, is uh, Disney. They have so many assets. They have such a great CEO, has the credibility to make the kind of requisite staggering investments he needs to make in content. They have uh, offline resources with their parks and their cruise lines to kind of create a, a, a competitor Netflix. But I'm not, I'm not here with a message of hope around media. Media is a flat growth business and you have two or three companies soaking up all the oxygen. And just on Disney, for them to actually really have impact, what, what acquisitions needed there? Well, so again, it's easy to, to, you know, I'm great at running other people's businesses. I think Disney was in a position to offer kind of this grand bargain and create sort of Disney flicks, which was uh, basically say, all right, uh, we have this offering and it's Star Wars seven days early in your home. It's the best kids content in the world. It's, it's differentiated exclusive content, uh, Disney sports, i.e. ESPN. It's great adult original programming, i.e. Disney Hulu. It's, uh, the rest of the world has to come to Disney when it's ridiculously crowded and wait in line and pay $14 for a snow cone and wait two hours to get on the Pirates of the Caribbean. Disney Flix members 
get to come on days where it's only other Disney flicks members, no lines, you don't pay for anything. And by the way, if you want to do a reunion with your family on a Disney cruise line, it's only for Disney flicks members and they charge $29.49.99 a month. And if you're a dad, you got to do it. You just got to do it. You can't be a good dad and not be a member of Disney flicks. I think that was the opportunity to offer this ultimate, almost rivaling prime-like membership program from Disney that basically said, if you have kids, you have to have this full stop. And the, they have the assets to pull this off. The next episode, the next, um, the next episode is the Star Wars trilogy or whatever it is now. I would pay a lot of money to get seven days early and not have to go to a theater where I'm worried someone's going to pop off a cap and the floors are sticky. I just don't ever want to set foot in a movie theater again. And I know that sounds elitist, but it's true. My home viewing experience is now far superior to most of the movie theater experiences I go to now, with the exception of this niche offering called iPick. I can't stand Disney. Make it less awful for me. But anyways, they have the assets to pull together a grand bargain, but instead they're doing you know, they have Hulu, they have ESPN, they're doing this, the Disney thing, they've sequestered their parks, because this would require a massive hit to earnings for the next three to five years to do this. But I think over time, they could move away from a transactional business, which is valued at a multiple of EBITDA, to a recurring revenue business, which is valued at a multiple of revenues. So that's where I think the huge opportunity is. I also think they made a mistake uh, pricing below Netflix. I think Disney is a luxury brand and they should have sent a signal that we're a premium offering because they do have the best content in the world full stop. So look, kudos to them for taking on Netflix. It's paid off. Their stock is up. It's a good offering. They were in a position, in my view, to really, uh, you know, they could have, you know, the empire could have struck back here. And so I think it was a bit of a half measure, but they're still, they're still, counter-punching as well or uh, anyone in the space. In terms of acquisitions, I haven't really thought about it. I think it's more about strategy around their current assets. I don't see an immediate acquisition that they need. Now, buying Spotify would be interesting for them. Um, someone is probably, if Spotify stock doesn't go up in the next six to 12 months, I think they become an acquisition target because they own that medium. Spotify is the best product in that medium. And they'll need to sell because these monopolies, including Apple, are now growing faster than Spotify with a of an inferior product because they're preloaded on a billion iOS devices. So I, I love Disney. I think Bob Iger is a gangster and I say that in a, a good way. I think he's great at what he does. So I'm excited to watch them. I probably just would have had a different approach with their asset base. I think the subscription model is, yeah, is very interesting. Uh, and it's, it's obviously what we're seeing, not just in, not just in, in content, but across the board, obviously Amazon's driving that heavily. So I think the subscription model would be really interesting. Um, one final question for you. What's the next chapter for you? What projects are in the making? What have you got on your horizon? Well, so we sold L2 and I just left there. Um, uh, more writing, more teaching. I'm involved in another startup that's what I call a business fitness platform that tries to upscale and retain employees through short form video and podcasts around innovation and learning. So trying to kind of, if you will, take education, the best of education and business media and deliver it to um, the workforce that doesn't have access to offsites or isn't going back to ESSEC or NCAD or London Business School. So we'll see. I'm already sort of like freaked out that I'm involved in another startup. I'm not a young man like you and startups are a young man's game, but I want to do something in education. I think my field has kind of outpriced. Uh, it's, I, I just think the prices we're charging in graduate education are somewhat usurious and almost immoral. So I'm trying to figure out a way to 
get involved in the business media landscape with a focus on operations as opposed to investing, subscription as opposed to um, um, ad-supported, no advertising, and start launching content and see where it takes us. So if I sound like I'm all over the place, trust your instincts. <laughs> um, Scott, as always, um, as always, it's been absolutely amazing to talk with you. Um, I do think The Algebra Happiness is a fantastic book that's super relevant. Obviously, we're the marketing and technology book club, but actually this transcends. This is just a book that anybody should be reading right now. Thank you, Carl. Good luck. Congratulations on your success. Thank you.